Hey there, welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. I just wanted to do a brief little intro to this episode because it wasn't originally intended to be a Full Cast and Crew episode. I'm working on something else for 2023, and I had a originally planned to have this conversation as part of that project, but it was such a far-ranging and interesting conversation that touched on so many interesting aspects of music and film, pop culture, that I just kind of fell in love with it, and I really do want to share it with you. It's a conversation I had with my friend Jeff Weed about a film that he and I both saw earlier in the week. It's a meetup at the movies event. It was a concert film from 1972 featuring a Grateful Dead concert from Copenhagen, Denmark. And although that's ostensibly the reason for the conversation, I think you'll see that it ranges kind of all over the place. And I'm saying that somewhat defensively because if you're not a fan of the Grateful Dead, I get it. You're probably going to think to yourself, hmm, do I really want to go on this journey? Trust me when I say Jeff is such a intelligent, thoughtful, sensitive, soulful person that I really think you'll get something out of the conversation, whether you're a fan or whether you're not. So if you're a fan of the pod, I think you'll love it. If you're a fan of the dead, you'll definitely love it. And if you're not a fan of either, you wouldn't even really be listening to me talk right now. So what's your problem? Enjoy the episode. Here's my conversation with Jeff about the Grateful Dead's Meet Up at the Movies, Copenhagen, 1972. So, Jeff, welcome to whatever this is. <laughs> Thank you. It's fun to be here. I'm glad we got the chance to do it. It was fun to virtually go to the movies with you the other night. My wife said, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to this Grateful Dead meetup at the movies thing. She said, well, who are you going with? As my wife often asks me. Yeah. I like to go to the movies by myself, and I always feel very judged when she says, who are you going with? And I, 99% of the time, if I say I'm going to a movie, I'm going by myself. That's just how I am. So I always yeah. feel like I have to justify going to the movies by myself. And in this case, I justified it by saying, well, I'm going with Jeff Weed, but he's going in Chicago and I'm going here. <laughs> She's like, how does that work? I said, it just works through some sort of Grateful Dead magic. Don't worry about it too much. I'm, this, I'm the same way. I, I love to see a movie by myself. And uh, I, I have to thank you because I had avoided these sort of meetup at the movies for no good reason other than I just didn't think I'd enjoy it. And um, I probably never would have went if you hadn't. Uh, sort of uh, put the uh, the little bug in my ear. So oh, okay. I appreciate you uh, bringing well, me along. I've never been to one either. And I wonder if we probably both would not go for the same bizarre weirdo reasons, which for me is sort of like, and I even felt this, I wanted to ask you about sort of what the vibe was in the theater. Yeah. If I could have, I would have slipped in just as the lights dimmed and I would, I, I, I don't care about, once I'm there, I'm totally fine. And I would hang out when the lights go up because I like to watch the credits all the way through on any movie that I see. But I am so nervous about being a part of some group of people that I'm not entirely sure I want to be a part of. Uh, yeah. Like showing up early and hanging out, which a lot of people were doing in my theater. What was the vibe like at the theater where you where you went and saw this? It was similar. You know, I arrived early because I haven't been to the movies in a long time with COVID. And so walking into a movie theater uh, was strange for me. There was a lot had changed. So mm. the, I was I felt a little um Adrift, just going in, and no one took a ticket. You just sort of wandered in, and there was assigned seats, which mm-hmm. I'm not used to. 
So I got there early, and uh, the vibe was a little weird at first. There was only two or three people there, and then I think uh, everyone thinks the way you think because at Showtime, uh, it was full. I mean, there were 70 people there, yeah. uh, definitely older, but a, a, the, I think the vibe was uh, irreverence and um, a lot of gummies being passed around from what I could tell. <laughs> um, you know, that's a different world than we, you know. Sure. That is still strange to me, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was a really it was a lot of fun, and there was appropriate moments of laughing at the misgoofs that went on during the show. Right. There was some clapping, which I always find awkward, but <laughs> sometimes you can't help yourself. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot more fun than I would have expected if you told me I would have a good time. Yeah, it's weird to have a movie set up like a collective concert experience, which is kind of what they're going for with this. I had the same thing. I think this audience was more of a, I was surprised it was more of a beer drinking audience because you could get beer at the Union Square Theater. So there was a lot of annoying getting up and going and coming back for beers during the comparatively short running time. I was also afraid because I didn't really look into this until I was at the theater. I thought, oh my God, did I just sign up to get into a movie at seven that's going to be like a four and a half hour dead set that I'm staying for. Is that what I'm getting? And then I was Googling. I was like, Oh, okay. It's they, it's well, we had a more geriatric group. So it's funny. You mentioned that most of my guys getting up and uh, going around, getting to the bathroom. They couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't do more than 20, 30 minutes at a time, which I thought was kind of charming in a way. But yeah, you know, what's funny is I, I, I to go back to your sort of incognito mode, you know, sneaking at the yeah. last minute, I put on my Europe 72 shirt, and I just thought I was going to go straight down the middle on this one. Yeah. And um, there was a lot of people there. Uh, some of them were wearing tie-dyes. Some of them were older. Mm-hmm. But it, there was also a really nice uh, – this this just, like, makes my heart swell. When I see kids in their 20s and 30s mm. enjoying the music like we do. Yeah. Uh, without any sort of, you know, without a condescension or they're just there for the music and however they got there, they got there. Mm-hmm. I just absolutely love that. And it turns me into a little emotional mush pile. And I don't know why, but it just, I just absolutely love the fact that there's people just absorbing this music through strange ways. Mm-hmm. And then they come to the theater and here we are all together and yeah. we're all just, you know, grooving. Well, listen, it's part of what I want to talk about when we get there at the end of this conversation, which is a look ahead to the final Dead & Company tour announced for 2023. The music, I think, and I'll pause it then, but I'll give you a sneak preview of my argument now. You know, I think Dead & Company did as much as anything to create that scenario you're talking about. I think people of different younger generations are introduced to the music or the hipness again, because you and I have lived through two, there's two moments where the Grateful Dead became cool in broader culture. The first one was really annoying because it was the touch of gray era, right? And so all of us who were going to shows at that time were so annoyed at what, what felt like frat boy culture descending upon that summer tour and kind of ruining it, quote unquote, which of course is not the first time deadheads ruined a scene or a tour it didn't you know how much it had to do with interlopers versus the whole scene itself sort of ruining it is another discussion but yeah you know i I agree with you i think seeing um i had the same thing my theater was probably uh it was a smaller theater it's probably 50 or 60 people there kind of hipsters you know cooler new york kind of contemporary heads who are wearing fashion tie-dyes and other things that sort of exist now because yeah. the culture is present in stores like James Purse or other places that sell ridiculously over. Like I just went on a walk today in the in the West Village and there's giant billboards pasted up with Grateful Dead uh, underwear 
from some hip brand. I mean, it's it's kind of bizarre, you know, that. It, well, I, I, maybe you can comment on this, too. I get a hoot of walking down the street and there's a bunch of hip hop kids who are just have no idea what the tie dye means to me. And they're they're head to toe tie dye. They got their hoodies mm-hmm. tie dye. They look at me as if I'm sort of like, oh, gee, but they have no idea. <laughs> I don't know if they have. I'm I, I, I just look at them. I think, oh, it's nice that it finally came around. Because I, I don't I, know I, if they have no idea, Jeff. You might be surprised. I don't know either. You know, I think they might have some idea because I don't know. I, the music has crossed over again. I mean, I think it's broader yeah. than us now. There's a, there's a way in which it has relevance. Um, it has relevance. It has relevance commercially. Dead and Company is one of the highest grossing touring acts of the last five or seven years. It has relevance musically because the sound, the the song catalog, as we know, as we've always known, is forever. It is a Beatles-esque collection of Mm -hmm. forever songwriting that will, and we've already lived through a second iteration of a band performing the music that has ties to this band that we went and saw from the 1972 show. But that's a new band playing the music in a new manner that is contemporary. Yeah. And um, you cannot discount how much, however much people sometimes like to, what John Mayer has meant to the music of the Grateful Dead in this iteration and his cultural kind of position, both as a musician and as a social media star, um, has a lot to do with the popularity of the music living again and but it all comes from how well the music is played live, as it always has. And that's what we're here looking at in 1972. Yeah, I, I revere what John Mayer's done. I really do. And I, I, I know um, it, it's, it's in a, a possible spot to come into. Mm. Oh, my God. But it, to walk, there's, there's a couple of things that I think they, Dead Company does well. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but one thing is they don't, that I love is they don't treat the music like it's in a case. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that gets me more turned off than when the, the music is treated so reverently mm-hmm. that it doesn't have anything. I still need a little feedback in there. I still need a couple missed chords. I like it when they forget a lyric. Yeah. If they're going somewhere interesting. And the fact that John Merrick can mix in that the chops, he can bring his own sound to it. He's um, true to the music without being overly uh, respectful of it. Mm-hmm. And he brings you something fresh and it just, I, I'm having more fun than I ever did. Um, I can't last as long as I used to, but I still love it. And it's 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 impressive to me that uh, that you'd want to take that on and that you take it on so fully and fully embrace it so to the point where it's not even a question anymore mm-hmm. of, of, you know, it, it should John Mayer be playing Grateful Dead music? Yes. It's, it's now a question of why why aren't more people sort of just doing what they love, stepping into a, a, the space and, and taking it over, just doing their thing. Yeah, it's it's one of the more remarkable musical accomplishments, I think, ha- that has happened in, in recent musical memory, starting back with, you know, the Fare Thee Well shows and Trey stepping in and doing something almost even more crazy because it was such for such a limited time to learn what he had to learn and to be able to step on stage and even just survive that. That was yeah. that was an incredible thing. That didn't speak to me as much as Dead and Company did right out of the gate. Uh, I don't know why. It just uh, I'm not. It wasn't that I was a huge John Mayer fan, but I knew enough about him to know that he had the chops on the instrument. That I think his his pop culture kind of and his unfortunate uh, headline moments obscured for quite a while that he's really a legacy artist and someone who 
is one of the greatest guitar players playing now and who has the musical background and understanding to understand both the simplicity of what this is and the incredible, bizarre, alchemical, psychological chemistry of what's going on on stage and that it's a living, breathing thing and that all parties contribute to it on stage. And it's not equal. It's not an equal contribution. Like, And I think it's admirable for Bob Weir uh, and I think it's understandable why I think we can look and say, well, Bob really, really loves Wolf Brothers right now. That's what he really wants to do. Okay. And I think the reason he really, really loves that and wants to do it is look, this is a guy whose documentary is called The Other One. His whole <laughs> life, he has stood on stage next to someone of unfathomable superlativeness at the guitar. And he appreciates that and he understands that role. He said of John Mayer, it's nice to stand next to a fire breather again, uh, referring yeah. to what he used to stand next to for Jerry for so long. But I get it. Bob wants to do his own thing and he wants to lead his own band and be the guy. Um, it doesn't work for me per se, but I am going to watch some of those shows this weekend because it occurs to me that when I first dipped into Wolf Brothers, it was really just the trio. Yeah. Now, I'm, I saw a thing the other day. It's like there's a horn section. Kementi uh, is in the band. There's all kinds of things going on. So I'm going I'm to check it out this weekend before I have Yeah, I, I, I went through the same pattern. And I, I went just because there's for lack of better terms, there was really nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought those shows sounded hollow, but right before COVID hit, the last show he played, he played in Chicago, and I was right in front of him. And he had Jeff Cimenti, and I had some studio musicians with him. And it really sounded great. There were still those moments when you are going to sit through Bobby thinking he can uh, run off a solo that he really probably shouldn't try. <laughs> but there was also just some phenomenal musicianship that yeah. I really missed. And it was fun to see them playing joyfully. I think mm -hmm. that's part of it. Yes. To play that music, you really have to play as much with your heart with your mind. The set list is always important. But you can play a great version of a mediocre song mm -hmm. if you really, at the moment, is right. And to me, there were more and more of those moments. And when I finally, the last time I finally saw them with a horn section, they played Weather Report Suite and Let It Grow mm -hmm. with the Horns. And I was absolutely blown away. I've never... I've, I've hit lots of highs at Grateful Dead shows, and this is as high as I've ever hit. Mm. It was just all perfect music for four or five minutes where it all came together, and that was worth the whole show. Okay, that's great so to I hear. I encourage you to check them out again. You're not going to get everything you want, but you'll get a couple things you need. And you know what? He's he's an eminence grease. He's a sage. He deserves and has earned the right to do whatever the hell he wants to do, as much as I'm going to lament and mourn the end of Dead and Company, if it is the end of it in the way that we've come to see it. I do have a sneaking suspicion, and this is maybe a conspiracy theory. I kind of wonder if Wolf Brothers is going to also absorb uh, John Mayer. I don't think it would absorb O'Teal because it already has Don Was. But Don Was is John Mayer's recording mentor. So that is a connection that existed before any of this. Um, Billy and Don was is uh, also royalty. I mean, Don was, yeah. I mean, Don was is when you do the whole bloodlines of Don was. I mean, what is he doing? What, what, yeah. I mean, again, he's having a great time, but this is not for me. This is sort of like the billionaire stepping off his yacht. Saying, right. I'll take that island, but I'll go with the, all the rest of the islands. I mean, he could do whatever he wants. I love the guy to death, but he's got a pretty charmed life. Well, but to your point, the joy of it for him, he doesn't get to go out on the road and play in a band like this in his career sure. much. So there is that. So I, I do have a, I mean, this is probably just my, my hope talking, but I, I do feel like 
What I saw on the last tour with Jay Lane stepping in for the unfortunately ailing Billy, um, I'm a huge Billy guy. I'm a drummer. Um, I have come to really, really zone in and appreciate on Billy so much more uh, through the five or six years of going to Dead and Company shows and watching all of them on the couch tour. And so when Jay stepped in, I was sort of like had a reflexive kind of like, uh, I'm not into this. Who is this guy? But of course, he's great and so different and he swings in a different way. And, the, and, and I saw Mayer doing something that, frankly, he doesn't really do a lot with Billy, which is turn around and look at the drummer and groove with him. A lot of times on stage, Mayer's doing that with Jeff, but he really was getting off on Jay, I thought. And that's when I started thinking like, oh, I wonder if like, because there's a business component to this that we don't have to get into, but there is a business component to Dead and Company. Sure. And there's a monetary component about how the money flows to people that aren't even in the band, like Phil Lesh and other things. And it's a it's a business set up yeah. between John Mayer, uh, Bob Weir, Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzman. And at least as I understood it originally, Jeff and O'Teal were hired guns. But those four guys, quote unquote, owned Dead & Company or were the corporate entity of Dead & Company. It may be that that deal has run its course. Maybe there's something forthcoming. I don't. I can't imagine that some combination of these people won't continue to play this music going forward past 2023. Uh, well, so let me let me give you my crystal ball on that. So I, I I live the same thing. I'm also a drummer, and I hate to admit it, Jason. I think you and I probably play more like Jay Lane than Bill Clifton. Yes. In other words, Jay Lane is a little bit more straight ahead than Bill yeah. Clifton, but Jay Lane also has that sort of just run through a wall kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. The band's slowing down, he'll just keep running. Which I love. Billy, I think, especially in the, in the, the the movie we just saw, if you Mm. watch him just during something like China Rider or something, he is playing a jazz that, that that I can't, I can't do it. Musicians I've watched in my life where I've said, wow, I want to play music because that guy plays music and I could do that. Mm-hmm. Then there's music, musicians I watch and say, I should probably play tennis because <laughs> I can't do that. And I'll never do that. Yes. So I might as well just go off and take a racquetball because at this point, me mm-hmm. trying to play like Bill Kurtzman is just not going to happen. Yes. So I'll, I'll miss Billy's sound, but I think I think Jay would be a fit in. I think this is, the, this is me being in rock and roll business and mm-hmm. playing as a fan for a long time because I did used to produce some concerts. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I have a little bit of insight in how bands operate. If you, if you read it closely, this is the last tour. Mm. These aren't the last shows. Mm. So this is the last time we're going to go through all the sheds. We're going to go to Saratoga and all the places that the dead touched that we all have a fondness for, but there's nothing to say you couldn't pull a Phil Lesh, which is mm. seven nights at the Capitol theater or uh, a mm-hmm. new year's show or three nights in Chicago. Mm. I think Billy is probably done. I think, yeah. you know, his heart's, his heart's a little weaker than it was. And, as much 
love as he has for everything he's doing. I just think there comes a time where you can't do it anymore. True. So I think that's probably the two things grinding, grinding things to a halt. But I, I have a feeling that you're going to see some Dead and Company concerts. Mm. Maybe not full on tours, but um, this is the last tour around. I think it's the last hurrah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. <laughs> Who I am and what I really do. Let's see. Uh, I'm Jerry Garcia, and I play the guitar for the Grateful Dead, amongst other things. And uh, your own musical influences when you were growing up, who did you listen to as a, as a kid? I, I had lots, I had eclectic influences, let's put it that way. I, I, I heard virtually every kind of music. My father was a musician, you know. My mother was a, was a, um, a coloratura. Uh, you know, soprano, and uh, I just, you know, I mean, I heard every kind of music. I, my mother, my grandmother loved uh, country music, uh, the Grand Ole Opry, and Harry Owens and his Royal Hawaiians. <laughs> I mean, I heard all kinds of things. I, my ears were full of music, you know, so I plus the popular music of the time, the 40s and 50s, you know, when I was growing up, but I was uh, at the the inception of rock and roll. I listened to rhythm and blues. I had an older, older brother who was a rhythm and blues nut, and so I got rhythm and blues from him, and then rock and roll as it developed in the 50s uh, was like my music. That was my native music, so to speak, and uh, that was the thing that made me want to play was rock and roll. The first thing I heard when I heard the electric guitar and Chuck Berry and all the great you know, licks, the rock and roll licks, and, and just the sound of the electric guitar. I thought, oh, God, I really want to do that. And I got my first electric guitar when I was 15, and that was it. Okay, let's talk about 1972. You, you sent me a, a, a good addendum here to where I was going to start. So we talked about the meetup environment. If people are interested in this, I don't know if this is a bigger thing outside of the Grateful Dead. Are there other meetup at the movie things for bands, or is this just a offshoot of the Grateful Dead business? Do you know? I, I haven't seen anything about it, but what kind of shocked me, I went on the Facebook, and there's a page devoted to this, of course. And I was kind of surprised how broadly this was um, distributed. I thought would have thought maybe five or six major cities in the U.S., that's it. But there were people in Belgium driving to Copenhagen to see it. Hmm. They showed it in Denmark. They show, <laughs> were showing it in theaters in Kansas hmm. and rural Texas and Oregon. So I, I don't know how many theaters this actually went out to, but I was shocked by just the geography of it. I would yeah. have thought it would have been a very limited audience. So maybe – Maybe we're underestimating mm-hmm. how popular this is because I don't know other bands doing it, but this really seems like um, bigger than I imagined. And I wonder how much it ties into what movie theaters are doing with special events, whether they're doing mm-hmm. um, something from the Met and the opera or they're doing a play where they're, they're live casting it. You know, it's interesting to think when you think about the future of movies, the content gets so distributed in so many ways now. Mm-hmm. But, but that you are willingly going to the movies to see a spectacle. You're not going to see a documentary at the movies. You want to see Star Wars on the big screen, right? Mm-hmm. You want to see the Grateful Dead on the big screen. But you could you could see it on any screen you want. There's yeah. no reason to right. you're just looking to see it. But you go to the movies now for spectacle. So I wonder how much things like this will become more important to what we, we do the movies as just the place you went to. I, I go to the movies. I don't even know what's playing. We just went to the movies. <laughs> right. And you got there and said, what's the next movie? And have I seen it? And I'll see it again. Who cares? Yeah. But those days are gone. So maybe this is something that, you know, that really is, is going to roll into something bigger. I don't know. I think you're probably right. I mean, listen, I'm a huge consumer of the Nugs couch tour. I mean, mm. I give them all my money every tour uh, for the entire thing. 
and I watch all of them. And it's it's something that could be um, that could be a theatrical experience too, particularly given the fact that I believe nowadays they're shooting them at least 4K, if not 8K resolution. So the filmmaking, the quality, the ability to look at what's going on is unparalleled. Uh, it's kind of like watching NFL football. I mean, it's not as good in person per se if you really want to zone in on specifics of the music as it is at home in a headphone environment, uh, which is kind of unfortunate to to mature to that point where that's kind of what how I need to get what I need to get out of the music is I've got to be sitting there with my headphones on with 4K <laughs> resolution because that's how much I need what I need. I do enjoy going to the concerts, but I don't really enjoy the sheds in summer. Uh, I went with my friend Buck to a couple of the SPAC shows in 2019. And, um, you know, it's okay. It's just, it's it's such a party there that it's, it's hard to appreciate the music with guys bumping into you and spilling beer on you and all the stuff I'm not into anymore. Uh, it's, so. Well, that's you know the, the interesting thing for me is so I, I'm like you usually when I'm going to a Dead and Company concerts in a major city. So yeah, I'm in Chicago, so Wrigley's easy for me. Mm-hmm. But I also travel to a lot of rural parts of the United States for my job, so I get to see them once in a while, like in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the world down there is so different. Mm-hmm. I, I went to the Charlotte concert I want to say last year, and I, I was late. I I came in, I just had a pit pass, and I walked to the front of the stage. <laughs> And there was literally no one in the pit. And I'm sitting here going like, am I in the right place? No one cares. And no one cared. I mean, literally no one cared. And people were walking around getting beers in the pit. I said, do you guys know how to do a concert? Because I don't understand what this world is you're living in. So to that point, when I looked at tickets for the tour, I decided to come to Boston. I decided to come to Chicago. But I decided to take in the two North Carolina shows just because Mm. it is still a different world down there than, than it is you know, when you go to Saratoga, yeah, it's not so yeah. much a mania. I like that. I think that's smart. I, I was looking at those. I was looking at that little swing, too, the Charlotte. Uh, maybe there's a Pennsylvania one, a Charlotte one, and then a, a Virginia one. There's kind of like a three-show three, three show swing there. I was, I was looking at that, too. So, um, okay, 1972. Let's mm-hmm. talk about this show. Uh, this is a Grateful Dead concert that was the first ever rock concert broadcast on TV in Copenhagen, if I have that right. And they, they did played, I think on the 14th of April and then came back on the 17th to do this for TV. Does that sound right? Yeah. And the the schedule, if you look at it is perfect grateful dead because it's (laughs) totally nonlinear. If you put this together as like, we're going to go to Europe for two months and see some sites here. It's it's a mess. It's sort of like someone who's never been to Europe before. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah, Germany can... and Italy. I don't know. Let's you know. That's fine. I know. I was reading it in uh, McNally's book, uh, and I was reading this relevant portion of the '72, uh, the Europe '72 jag with all the hilarious Sam Cutler anecdotes. And I was thinking that too. Like they they did the the gate on the 14th in Copenhagen. And then I think they went like back to London, and then did another couple of days, and then came back to Copenhagen on the 17th, and then went somewhere else. So it, it definitely made no sense. I wanted to ask you. In the room, when you saw it, uh, who got applause uh, in the little intro? There's a little intro movie that's teed up yes. by David Lemieux. Did, did David Lemieux get a round of applause? I have to say, even though he's, I feel like he's a peer of ours, Jason, I don't feel like people like David Lemieux. Oh, are you I don't kidding? know why it is. Oh, no, he got a, <laughs> I, I, he got a round of applause in New York. 
In, in Chicago, it was kind of like listening to your grandson tell him about his baseball game, and you're kind of interested, but you're also like, okay, I, yeah, can we get on with this? And I, 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 don't, I don't know the man. I know nothing against I don't know anything other than I just got this feeling like we're kind of like, all right, David, wrap it up. <laughs> so a different vibe. Oh, my God, no, that's totally not the vibe in New York. I think that New York deadheads are probably more plugged into the um, – the feed of the information that the dead put out nowadays, which is pretty sophisticated in terms of social media and all these things that you never would have expected the dead to sort of be good at or master. And yeah. Dave, Dave Lemieux has a big part of that. He's obviously involved in all of the remastering of the shows and the releases and pick, taking on the, the Dick's Picks legacy. And uh, yeah, he's, but he's doing Yeoman's work. He's doing Yeoman's work, but he got a big, he got a round of applause in our, in our auditorium, which I thought was great. Um, well, maybe people in the Midwest don't know what he's doing. Maybe they don't. I think maybe that was more of a, uh, the other person who got a round of applause was Mountain Girl, which I thought was kind of impressive and weird. I was surprised that people f- have, I mean, this warmth towards Mountain Girl, which is kind of cool. Well, there was a lot of women in my group, which, which again, I, I always, um, maybe I'm old fashioned, but I just am glad when I see some, mm. the more diversity, the better for me. And, mm-hmm. and they were they were definitely advocates of Mountain Girl. They, they put her on a pedestal above some of the guys. I, I think... Um, Sam Cutler, of course, just actually oh, yes. killed it. I, I could listen to him read <laughs> ingredients to a, a you know a cake. I, oh I, my god! There's no way he can't be entertaining. And um, you know, the other thing that just kind of hit me is uh, when they were talking about buying the masks, you know, and the famous uh, clown hats and everything. Yes, is that at some point somebody had to go to a, a, a shop in New York City and buy all that stuff? Yeah, well, they was... bought tons of it. Everyone had a mask. There's 70 masks. Well, it was, um, it's, it's in, uh, it's in McNally's book. It was, it was, it was, uh, what's his name? Big Steve. And, uh, yeah, Big Steve went to a, uh, they went to a place in New York. I mean, when you're planning two months on tour and you're going to play, say 50 dates in 60 days, Mm. the first thing you think of is I need to get to a costume (laughs) shop and get at least 60 clown masks. I mean, this is a kind of mentality you're thinking of. And they were, you know, um, when they talk about Europe 72, I think one of the things that people don't talk about, there was this great run of shows in New York city. Mm. They actually moved the whole Colossus to New York city for two weeks before they left. They left uh, late March and came into uh, England in early April. But there was about, um, I think it was at the Academy of music. I want to say there's about seven or eight shows that are stunning. Mm. They're really great shows on their own. And they were clearly a warm up for what they were going to do in Europe. But when you add those 14 days into the 60 days in Europe. I mean, that's a, that's a, a quarter of a year mm. where you are away from home, mm-hmm. uh, living out of a suitcase. Um, I mean, New York, Paris, all these places where there's not a lot to do other than get in trouble and have fun. And they had <laughs> their families with them. Yeah. Right? They had yeah. three-year-olds with them. Yeah. So it's, it's a, when you think, when you sort of look, take a step back and look, think of that time in New York. Oh, man. I, I, I'm sure there were some hijinks that went on that led into the, what happened in Europe. Well, in that little video that they play, which uses some great footage of behind the scenes stuff in, uh, of the dead on these various barges and ferries arriving in Copenhagen and wearing uh, Danish sweaters. And um, I found that kind of moving. I found it kind of. Um, I thought it was incredibly sweet. It was sweet. I think it's always sweet when you see people out of context. Yeah. And I'll, like seeing Jerry board on a foggy, talking <laughs> to Keith, and you would just want, you know, like one of the, this is such a strange quote from Jerry Garcia, but it stuck with me for decades. And it says, and he said something, he was asked something like, what are you feeling when you're on stage in front of all these people sending out this mag, you know magical music? And he said, I, I think a lot about how my feet hurt. 
And it was just the kind of thing where, you know, sometimes you're doing something in front of so many yeah. people and you're so used to it that it's housework. You know, you're mm-hmm. distracted by the bug on the amplifier and it mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything, but you need those things to get through your life. If sure. you're Jerry Garcia or anyone who's performed in front of people, you've done your thing for a while and people want to see it again and, and want to experience it more. And you get to the point where you're thinking, Maybe I need new shoelaces. Like yeah. I've got to remember to put shoelaces on the list. I was that actually, kind of thing. So when you see them in those contexts, it's incredibly sweet. I thought, I mean, there's a lot. We can talk about Pigpen all day long, but mm. one of the things that broke my heart in this in this short little movie mm. was Pigpen's letters home. Oh, man. The very beginning, when he just has, it's like a kid who just, you know, his first time off the farm, and he's writing his mom and dad. He's in the final stages of, of dying. Mm, I mean, yeah. this is... He's done. He's stopped drinking, but he's not going to get better. Mm-hmm. Everyone can see it. Every time you take a shot at him, it's hard not to think this is the last time. And um, he's going out with a full knowledge of he can't do much about it, so he's going to sort of ride it to the end. But he's sending these letters home to his parents. I mean, yeah, it's heartbreaking. this is not the tough biker guy who is no. standing toe to Janis Joplin throwing no. rocks at cops. This is yeah. a sweet, homesick kid who is – not going to be here long. There's an amazing anecdote in McNally's book about how at the time, since Pigpen had stopped drinking, he was the only one up early with, I think Sam Cutler was up because he had to do business uh, and Pigpen and he would have breakfast or something. And, and, and again, I don't know if you felt this. I think, I, I think everyone in the movie theater, there was a contingent that every time Pigpen was performing was like whooping and hollering. And there was also a contingent that I was in where you could kind of feel people being sad because I think, you know, people are aware, or at least were aware that, you know, within a year from this concert, he's dead. Um, yeah, I think I, I think a lot. I think there's much appreciation for him. And I, I heard as people were walking, I was just listening to this for the comments. Mm. And almost every comment was about not wanting to miss Pigpen. I hear Pigpen's up first. So you're not wanting oh, to wow. And just seeing that. And a lot of the comments I've been seeing online are about Pigpen. I think. Interesting. There's one other moment. I mean, the whole time he's just so distant from the, the band. I mean, he's just yeah. apart from the band. And they've one of the things I would say that the thing I like the least about the Grateful Dead is they have a habit of just mm. sort of leaving their dead behind. Yeah, they're they're not look. You have this. To me, I think we may disagree on this. We may not, but you have this really awkward next guy coming in for your job. Yeah, and you're cleaning out your office, and and Keith kind of looks over his piano <laughs> once in a while, like yeah. I'm just, here. Just, I'm, I'm here, here waiting. I'm, I'm waiting. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. I mean, that's a tough spot to be in when you're like, just, I need three more months and then you can yeah. come over. Like, and there's one other shot that, again, I wasn't expecting it to hit me, but it broke my heart. Is at the beginning of China Cat Sunflower, mm-hmm. and there's a shot of Bobby and uh, and Jerry playing, and it's just a great, they're, they're building the song. You know it's coming. It's just a great version of the song. But there in the middle is Pigpen, and he's playing a tambourine. Yes which has nothing to do with China Cat Sunflower. It's not psychedelic. It doesn't mean anything, but there is kind of just like, you know, like it's like visiting your grandma on the mm. porch and, you know, she's just kind of, she's just playing solitary because counting yeah. time. And I just, I said, man, I just, I love hearing his organ during trucking. That yeah. sort of gave me a little life. He said, now he's into it. Here's something he's enjoying. Mm-hmm. But there were just moments during this short little performance, and it wasn't a long time, where you could see he was disengaging. And, and sort of floating away. Well, did and you it, did you it, think it he was? My heart. Did you think he was disengaging? I what I focused on was I felt that Bill, that Bobby and Jerry were were noticeably tense when Pigpen was performing the number, mm. compared yeah. to how they were when they were singing and performing. And I don't know. Of course, Absolutely. we'll never know. 
you know, what was going on within the band at any given moment. You can read all the source material and, and, you know, one version says one thing and another says another. Maybe it was the awareness of the embodiment of what was going on, that there's a death that's, that's happening. I mean, physically, he's so different from the, the vital era pig pen. I mean, he weighs 200 pounds less, you know, he's, he's just skinnier than Bob Weir. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's skin and bones and he looks, he does not look well. So, no. uh, that was, yeah, that was an emotional, strange kind of presence. I felt, I did agree with you too, though, that for many of the songs, I was like, is he even, are they, do they even have him turned up? Like yeah. I can hear Keith's piano really, really well. And what's kind of a fairly muddied recording. I mean, apparently they recorded it on a 16 track, but it doesn't sound nearly as good as something like the, uh, the yogurt, uh, benefit show in, in, uh, Oregon does. That's uh, probably recorded on a 24 track, but I thought the sound was good enough that I could hear Keith's piano notes, which are probably harder to mic and get into the mix than Pigpen's organ, but I did hear it on the truck and in some other places. Yeah. Um, but it's a sad note, but it's a good, it's a moment for him. I think it, he deserves a little bit of a moment himself. If there's not a Pigpen documentary or just sort of more information about him, he's a worthwhile character to celebrate and kind of uh, mourn the loss of because he was a big part of the band in those early years. It was, and, you know, there was one other thought that I hadn't had before about him, which was, you never saw Pigman just step up and play a harmonica solo during a Jerry or a Bobby song. Mm. It's one of those weird things that when you when you think about it, you can't unthink it. Yeah, because he would allow himself to play solos for his own songs, mm -hmm. and of course Jerry would play his solos, and Phil had no problem walking all over the place. Mm -hmm. But the idea of Pigman walking up in the middle of Bertha and playing a little harmonica solo mm -hmm. is. That will never happen. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, why wouldn't it? Why, why can't Pigpen, right. this big, tough dude, why can't he run the place once in a while? And so yeah. there is that element. I think you're right. There's. I don't know if it's respect, if it's fear, mm. if it's that Pigpen was such a serious dude and they were goofing around. But the, the, you, know, you got the clown hats and they're goofing around during one of the best big railroad blues ever. And then two minutes later, you're, it's yeah. you know, the, a different mood. So yeah, it, well, it's definitely a document. There's nothing else. You get to really see this yeah. dynamic of a, a, a band that's about to really change. Well, and also to your point, you know, and I've said this before on other sort of grateful dead themed episodes I've done here. Yes. The sixties. Yes. You know, uh, togetherness and love and all of these things. But the real core and the undercurrent of the Grateful Dead is much more a kick-ass East Bay, Oakland, Hells Angels, shit-talking, mm -hmm. you know, heaviness. And I mean heaviness in a 60s way, like, man, that's a heavy scene. Like, dark shit was going on. Um, and it continues. I mean, listen, when I was at, when I was at SPAC, uh, we were sitting right in the front row, and to my right in the kind of loadout area... There were two Hells Angels uh, having a long conversation with, you know, a woman who I believe was one of the uh, tour managers. And these guys were, you know, just these were heavy Hells Angels characters like these guys looked serious. OK, they had the colors on and they were backstage and they were they were a part of the retinue and the entourage of what was going on. Uh, this it's is funny. in 2019. Yeah, and, and right before the 72 tour, there was actually they did a, a benefit right. for the Hells Angels in New York. I mean, I would love to hear that conversation. How do you go to the Hells Angels and say, we're going to do a benefit for you? Because my gut feeling tells me that the Hells Angels came to them and said, you're going to do a you're benefit. Gonna, exactly. <laughs> but you're exactly right. I mean, even in, so I went to a concert in 1989, and I had really great seats, and I was up front in Pittsburgh, and I was sitting next to some guys who were much older than me, and they said the last concert was Woodstock. 
<laughs> I said, tell me about it. And they said, well, there's really nothing to tell. You know, we just parked our bikes and, mm. and went. And then, you know, the other guy kind of gave him a nudge and said, well, we're still workers and then walked away. So who mm. knows? Mm. But it was one of those moments where maybe I should have, you know, just jumped into conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's listen, there's in any rock band uh, that's still around. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of destruction. It, it's yeah. it's not a safe environment. It's it's uh, poor Keith was another sad part for me uh, because this is really his this is really his introduction to the band, right? I mean, how long had he been in the band before this tour? I, I, I'm not sure exactly. But I think he started in late '71, and I I think the key to that that you're you're also you're, that probably puts you in that mood was when Donna Jean at the beginning. Says, I remember this is our happy time. Yeah. This is when it was good. <laughs> and this is, she just started. I mean, she just started. She's six months into it. Yeah. And saying, if that's how the best part of it. Yeah. They lasted until 79. Yeah. You're talking about, and, and they played a lot with Jerry in the off years. They were right. part of that Heart of Gold band. So there was a lot of time in there. I, I, and the one song in, in the movie that Keith really explodes on is One More Saturday Night. Yeah. going on in the band at that time is that this is the time when Garcia and Weir released two solo albums they claim. One was released in January, so right before they leave, and one was released in May when they're back. And they are almost all Grateful Dead songs, Mm -hmm. performed by the Grateful Dead. But this is when Jerry and Bobby were starting to say, you know, they hadn't put out any recordings since um, uh, Working Man's Dead Mm -hmm. and American Beauty. Um, they put out some live records, but they had sort of retreated away from the band while <laughs> staying with the band. Mm-hmm. So really, especially Ace by, by Weir, which is being celebrated for its 50th anniversary this year. It's a great album, but it's a Grateful Dead record. Right. He had, like maybe David Crosby came in and played a one song, but yeah. it's a Grateful Dead record. And all these songs, a lot of the songs in Europe 72 came out of Garcia and, and Weir's solo records, which weren't solo records. Yeah. So. I don't know how that dynamic adds in, mm. but it's a really strange thing. It's like, you know, divorcing your ex and then mm-hmm. showing up everywhere with your ex. <laughs> what's going on there? I don't know. Well, I also felt, I don't know if you felt this way. I felt Bobby was still a little tentative as a frontman on his numbers in this concert. He warmed up almost universally after the halfway point when he was nearer the end than he was the beginning of the song. I felt like at the beginning of his songs, he was not comfortable yet. Um, and I thought that was kind of visible. Did you notice that at all? Well, the biggest audience reaction that I, we have had was when he started trucking, <laughs> which was their hit. That was their touch of right. red. And this was, uh, again, 18 months after it had been introduced. And they were playing it nonstop. So it wasn't like, you know, he forgot. And he gets up there and he forgets the very first lyric. <laughs> Not, it's a long song. I get it. And God bless you. But 
you know, the first lyric. And that's when everyone laughed, like, oh, my God, it was like that even then. Okay, but hold on. I want to play you something here. I'm going to play you a bit of this. Just listen. Okay. You won't be able to you see it. This is what you're talking about. Okay, so. Okay, so what he did there, if you remember, yeah. they come out of that little part. He, he approaches the mic because it's his verse. And he forgets the first line and he has this great, which you can still see today, by the way, on any tour right, you go on, you, you will see the same expression, the same, I'm an idiot kind of smile. And the other guys in the band all turn and smile and you can see people in the audience love it. What's impressive is though, is he comes in exactly right on the next line, which is the recitation of the cities, which I think is impressive. I wouldn't be able to do that. Well, that's Bob Weir in a nutshell. I mean, he's playing these angular, weird, Rococo kind of rhythm guitar that doesn't yeah. make any sense, and every once in a while you're like, "What is going on?" And then all of a sudden, you know, he hits us something, and you're like, "Wow, where did that come from?" Yeah. And so it's it's like, like these lines going through space, and all of a sudden they congeal for a second, and they move off. He um he has a really weird sense of space and time that I I don't think mm. most people have. No, and I I actually thought Garcia was a little annoyed because Garcia upped. If, if you can maybe see it better than you can hear it, but in the movie, when when he blows it, Garcia just kind of gives a side of the look and gives a little <laughs> Chuck Berry growl. Of, yeah, and uh, yeah, it it, <laughs> it was funny. The other thing that got a big laugh was when Phil Lesh was smoking a joint. Yes, of, oh, you mean in the theater? Was, yeah, I think, yeah, and I think it was funny because given Sam Cutler's um, talk about how the Danish authorities went after their hash <laughs> and they couldn't find it, they hit it in the curtains. Yeah. Here he is on TV. Uh, clearly it's illegal. Mm -hmm. And clearly he's smoking a uh, marijuana cigarette. And clearly he knows it's on TV and people will see it. Um, it's just, a, that sort of got everyone giggling in the theater. So. Also, I think, I, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm growing out of this now because, um, well, really because of the most recent um official sort of dead release, which is some MSG shows from the early eighties, which I'm, yeah. which I'm, I'm, I'm maturing Jeff in my old age. I'm not a uh, fixed mind mentality. I mean, I am a fixed mind mentality, but I've learned to try to em embrace a growth mentality. My fixed mind mentality is that my era, and this is after, you know, 45 years of knowledge and exploration. My era is this era when Mickey is not in the band. And it's mm -hmm. not because I dislike Mickey. I love Mickey. But Kreutzmann, as the only drummer to me, creates more space for the stuff I really like, which is the interplay of the musicians with each other. And I love this era because to me, uh, I'm sure there's other things going on. I know acid is always going on, but I don't think we're yet in the heavy cocaine era of the band in the later 70s. Um, and I've heard other people like David Gans and other sort of dead uh, aficionados talk about the, the, the impact of drugs on the band is worthy probably of its own book or documentary in a way, because sure. I do think you can see it. I do think you can hear it. Uh, certainly in our era, which is an era I do remain pretty turned off to. Um, and, and maybe that will come like, like this MSG set, which I think is 81 or 82, has some incredible playing and it's, it's um, I know Bobby has always said like that our era of going to shows in the eighties is like when he thought they were the best. Um, mm. But 
knowing what I know, a diminished Jerry on stage for me is harder and harder to listen to. So the 82 stuff I'm kind of into because he's still very much playing the way he is here, which is still just the beginning really of this era of Jerry's playing that I'm really the most into. But are you the same way? Do you, do you like any iteration? Do you, do you appreciate an era specifically? You know, I'm, I'm, I think this is where you and I probably differ most. I, um, I really put it more into there's periods of greatness in this in this sort of journey along this from 65 to 95. There were moments in the 90s mm. that were, to me were transcendent, and they were very weird moments. There weren't moments you expect. They still managed to mess up every single meaningful show, like <laughs> July 4th at for the win. Oh, you, know, yeah. <laughs> you think it's going to be the best. It's the worst of the three. Yeah. Right. I mean, whenever it means something, they're not going to show up. Right. Whenever you're in some small little shack in, in North Carolina and all of a sudden they whip out something and you're like, so for me, there were moments along the way. I will say that, that this radio city show, and I've been collecting almost everything they put out is the one thing I didn't buy. Which one? And I didn't buy the, because I just didn't feel like this. You're talking about the MSG show? show? Yeah. The MSG, the one that, the issue they just put out. I had no interest in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Have you heard it? And I think I think for me, the re- part of the reason I, I have a hard time breaking up in the eras, and it's more about performance for me, mm-hmm. is there are songs that I can't imagine the Grateful Dead not being a part of. If you're taking the year of 71 to 74, which I think we would all agree is probably their prime mm-hmm. playing ability. Almost everything they're playing, and they're playing at a high level. Yes. So it's hard to argue that's not great music. And I would say... The Vanita, Oregon show of 1972 is the best Grateful Dead show. I ever. agree. I think it's better than than Cornell. But would you want to be on this planet listening to Grateful Dead without help? Slip Franklin, Scarlet Begonias, no. uh, Shakedown Street, um, all all the estimated profit. I mean, these are iconic songs that, on their own, are as important to mm-hmm. me as a Saint Stephen or yes. any of the songs they wrote in the 70s. So that's always a problem for me. Is I absolutely love it, but it, I can't. I couldn't listen to three 1973 songs in a row, mm. shows in a row. Interesting. My head would explode. I need to move around a little. Yeah, bit. I see what you mean. And you know what? I think you're right. I mean, for me, that's part of what. Um, there are certain tapes that I think we all remember from the high school years. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my man Chuck Hamlin, who turned me on to the Grateful Dead in his attic room in probably 1983, 84. He's the guy that made all the tapes and gave you a tape and hipped you to things. There are still tapes of his that are in my head, even though I don't physically own them. There's the Red Rock show, I think in 84, that's like the crispiest crackling soundboard. If I hear that, it, it is like a flashback unto itself. So there are absolutely moments, you're right. And you're, those songs that you mentioned, you're making me realize that yes, that's what I love too. And I don't hear them in this era that I profess to sort of plant the flag for. It's partly why Dead and Company hit me like a ton of bricks, because I believe they play that stuff in a way that we never really got to hear it, unless you really find those uh, superlative kind of shows that you're talking about from the 80s or the early 90s. Um, well, it's an interesting. I, I, I'd ask you to, to comment on it, because I have my theory as well, but Back, you know, the Dead were famous for not doing set lists, and there was some myth to that. They did have some mm-hmm. planning to it, but there was also a lot of just freeform. They mm-hmm. decided, that it, like, even in the movie, uh, they start playing the deal, or Jerry's fiddling around with the deal, and then he just decides to play Big Railroad right. Blues, and he plays it like you and I could never play. I mean, mm-hmm. it's an amazing version of a great song. But 
Now I understand with Den Company, Bobby uh, not only plans these, but he he they have to pull him away from the computer. That he stresses <laughs> out over making sure that you know there's all this different balance in there. Yeah, and they've done an extraordinary job of really understanding what Deadhead's like, mm. and really you know it's great when you walk in, you're hearing the other one as an opener. Yes, and like wow, that's that's great. Mm-hmm. You know, keeping on your toes. So I like the fact that they're they're just they're keeping it real to themselves, but they also have a an understanding that you know there are songs that we, we probably don't want to hear uh, mm-hmm. over and over again, and there's songs that are so entrenched in 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 us that when it hits, we just have an emotional absolutely uh, feedback right away. I think I've read or or saw someone talk about there's a there's a guy on the tour that that works on the set lists I think, and he's the one who sort of brings forth some of the historical things that we will see. Like they've done shows where sort of during or after the fact you realize they're ref- they're referencing something that happened, you know, 20 years earlier at this location yeah. and that that made it onto the set list in this kind of a way. Um, and it's probably just a combination. It's much more, I think touring is different. These shows are different. These guys are, I mean, until Billy had some of his issues last tour, it never even occurred to me to have even more appreciation for the ability to do this night in and night out, even on these relatively, I mean, when we say relatively small tours, I don't know, man, if you or I went out and tried to play like 23 dates in three months, what kind of shape do you think we'd be in at the end of that? I mean, it takes a lot. Like it would be a disaster. It would be an alter. I mean, look, I go to the shows and I'm tired. I know. I, mean, I'm I, not can, even I, mean, I get to get up and have a beer. So I, mean, I, I, don't, I have no right to complain, but I, 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 I do admire the, you know, I do admire the stamina. I do admire the willingness to do and I and I you know I've seen him play in some terrible condition. I've seen Jeff Tremendi get just dropped into the mm. into the water because it's mm-hmm. pouring out. <laughs> they just keep going, and I, I, I look. Yeah, I am. Getting company to me has been like a rebirth, and the yeah. thing that I will miss the most if this is in fact the final tour isn't hearing the music. It's there's very very few places left in this country that are really truly weird. And this is a very <laughs> weird space to go to. It's weird because it's old people and young mm-hmm. people. It's recklessness. It's fun. It's commerce. It's mm-hmm. tr- tons of tradition that is totally irreverent. Yeah. Um, nobody stands on a pedestal. You say, boy, you know, I guess you're not a deadhead because you didn't see Jerry and you yeah. get laughed out of the, you know, right. no way, old man, no one cares. It's a great time to be doing this. And it's one of the few places you can walk in and be as weird as mm-hmm. you want and no one is going to judge you for it or even care. They're mm-hmm. just, they, it's just fun. I, I've been the last two years, I've been giving away a lot of um, stuff that I make specifically for each concert. I've seen you do that. Yes. I just give it away to people. Yeah. That's amazing. And um, it's joyful. Yeah. And I just, that's what I will miss the most when, if this is the last tour, it's not hearing Franklin's tower again, or it's not, you know, yeah. coming up with the set list in my head. It's seeing just this array of weirdness of a naked guy running in front of you and the frat guys giggling. And I mean, it's just this, you, you don't get this grouping anywhere else. People don't come together like this for anything else I can think of. No. Well, and also I always like to think about how, how anomalous and strange as a presentation of a concert, it still is. Um, <laughs> I watch pretty much everything there is to watch of all these people talking, all the guys in the band. You know, these are probably the only four and a half hours John Mayer isn't talking. 
right? I mean, he talks, he likes to talk. He has a very active and engaged mind. He has a lot of interests. And um, as far as I can tell, you know, he doesn't have, uh, he, since he's not sort of partnered up or married or have children, you know, he has no one to kind of do what has happened to us, which is like, we realize no one really wants to hear what we have to say most of the time anyway, in our, yeah. in our own family groups or work environments or whatever else. So we're sort of dampened down a little bit, but he's a very enthusiastic talker. Uh, but there's no con there's no direct address ever really other than you know we'll be back in just a little bit um maybe there's a sometimes or another there's been a, an offhand political or donation kind of reference if something's going yeah. on uh, but it still remains very unlike any other concert you're ever going to go to where the act is like hyping you up or talking to you or or in fact, I don't know if you watched the John Mayer benefit shows from Montana, where he now lives. Mm -hmm. um, I was freaked out because he was in this incredibly small thing with maybe a couple hundred people playing uh, acoustic guitar. And he had, I think he was freaked out because <laughs> he had come off playing his tour, which was, yeah. which was massive and playing with just an incredible who's who of superlative session cats in his band. Yeah. And then he went into the dead and company tour last summer. And then sort of right after that, he did these two benefit shows and he, he looked a little awkward and uncomfortable almost for the first time because it was so intimate. It was like him with an acoustic guitar and like something went wrong with his guitar and the first song. And he was kind of like, it just, it, it had already changed him. Yeah. I think being, accustomed to being on this stage coming off summer tour with dead and company where none of that happens. There really isn't direct address or interaction with the crowd in that way. It's all happening through the music and our collective experience of the music. Uh, so it was kind of funny to watch him do that. I think that's one of the things that he actually appreciates that there's two, there's two thoughts I had when, when you're, we were talking about that. There's one is in, in the, um, in the movie itself, there's a moment where Phil Lesh kind of notices his monitors on. on. Yes. And he starts complaining to about the monitors, and it immediately. And I've seen this many times in the band. It's it always cracks me up. As soon as someone complains about something, everyone jumps on. Them. Yes. So then Bobby <laughs> starts talking over him, so Phil now can't hear himself think. Jerry starts talking into the mics, mm -hmm. so that he that Phil thinks his his monitor is on, and they just completely undermine each other mm -hmm. on stage. <laughs> And you say, well, this is why they don't talk because yeah. they're so they're just waiting for someone to say something and they undermine it. And of course, Phil's problem never gets addressed. Right? No one, no one from the crew races out. It's just kind of like by the time they're done picking on each other, then they just someone starts a chord and also they're off again. Yeah. Do you, hey, I just realized my monitors don't work. Do those monitors work over there? These uh, don't work. My either, microphone no. isn't in the monitors. Uh, would you please turn it up? We're having a slight I'm sure there must be a technical difficulty, difficulty reason for having my monitor is out of the microphone, however. Thank you. Oh, yes. Hey, my microphone Now, as to your question, sir, by action monitors, do you mean louder? And one of the things I've always loved about that irreverence is I saw, um, it was in 1988, we were up in Oxford Plains, Maine. And there was a let's go, uh, we want Phil chant going, middle of the first set. Mm -hmm. And Phil had had it. He was, he was in one of his moods. And he just got up to the mic and said. Hey, don't you think the guys in the band are going to get jealous if you, stop, if you yell for me all the time? I want you guys to yell for Mickey. 
I want you guys to yell for Bill and Jerry and Brent. All right? Next time you see somebody yell, hey, Phil, we want Phil, you yell, we want Brent, or we want Mickey, all right? Thank you. Let's hear more from Phil. Then you can move to the crew. We want Steve. Let yeah, Steve We sing. want Steve. We want, we want kid. Some, we want some volunteers from the audience, ladies and gentlemen. really kind of you. And they just destroy him on stage. Yeah. And every time you they try to address the audience, I've seen it again over and over again. Mm -hmm. There's someone in the band before they finish the sentence <laughs> that is already undercutting them. That's pretty the, funny. The other thing that the other thing that struck me was how pared down the presentation was. Oh man, yeah. I mean just basics. And I I, I was look. I, I took the liberty to look at the other seventy-two tours that are going on mm. um, around the same time, and it's an incredibly diverse group. There's Ziggy Stardust, mm. which is a very theatrical production, right? And the start of that sort of big, big tour. But um, Pink Floyd is touring, uh, starting playing Dark, Star, Dark, Dark Side. Dark Side, yeah, that's a big production. Um, before they record it, they play it for mm -hmm. a year live before they record it, which is crazy. You got Zeppelin out there on the road. They're pissed off at the Rolling Stones because the Rolling Stones have the biggest tour and mm. touring on Exile on Main Street. Right. It's Paul McCartney's first tour since the Beatles, touring with Wings. And then there was one other guy mixed in there, I'm forgetting. But imagine that. I mean, the, some of the greatest albums created in the rock genre, yeah. right? Exile on Main Street, Dark, Dark Side mm -hmm. of the Moon. The Dead are touring among all that. And it's just kind of stripped down, almost bar band existence. Mm hmm. And you can see sort of where the wall of sound is. They're kind of hellbilly answer to Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. You know, like Ziggy Stardust has a giant spider 700 feet tall, and, and we're going to make our amplifiers go to the moon. Mm -hmm. like, it, it really struck me that in this production, there was so little actual production. They really just got up there. It was all about the music still after all this time. I think you're right, and you have to, you have to think how – how weird it is that they that they never really went off into strange jags of grandiosity per se other than you know maybe taking a trip to egypt or you know right. europe 72 is about as crazy as it gets in sort of like ideas that they might have had at the time it's kind of crazy that it never took on any of those sorts of proportions or i guess that things like that were were left to like a new year's eve show where crazy shit would happen or production stuff would happen through bill graham or what have you um, I mean, I think I think the fact that it's still news they wore a nudie suit once in 1972 mm, that we're still yeah. talking about that <laughs> tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, about it's the, kind of fascinating. Fashion sense of the Grateful Dead. The other thing I wanted to ask you: um, of all the years I've spent listening to the music, of all the time I spent watching Jerry Garcia play guitar, it wasn't until I saw this show that something occurred to me, which was that Jerry is different on stage when he's playing um, non-solo parts in the songs, when he's soloing, he's in a different headspace, identifiably. Mm -hmm. And it find, it occurred to me when I was watching this, um, I, there's, a, there's a quote I heard from John Mayer once in, a, in an interview. I wish I could have found it because I would have cut it into here. But someone was asking him, as they always did when he first joined Dead & Company, you know, stepping into the shoes of Jerry Garcia, like, what's it like, all these kinds of things. He said, you know, man, the thing I really 
fixate on the most is how busy Jerry was on stage, how much he had to do in his playing. And this is a great example in this show. There are moments where he's playing, not rhythm, because Bobby is playing the rhythm parts, but, but Jerry is complimenting Bobby's rhythm with little filigrees that he's doing, right? Or he's playing sort of the note-based uh, melodies of songs. And he, he sort of carries himself and is more actively looking around while he's doing that stuff. But then when he solos, he, he kind of goes within himself. But at the same time, you feel like you're seeing this is him. This is the real Jerry. It's during those solos, I think. That's, the, that's who he is as a musician expressed uh, on stage. And I really noticed that this time. Well, it's, it's, it's a strange dynamic with him because he, he comes across as a lovable teddy bear. That's what you see up there. You see his sort of grandpa up there, right, with a beard, mm-hmm. beard and sort of a nice plastic expression. But he's a terrorist. I mean, he likes to blow <laughs> things up, and he likes to walk all over stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, hearing a quote where he's listening to a butthole surfer song, and they said, you know, could you ever play that? And he said, I would destroy that. And what he meant by that wasn't that he didn't appreciate the music or he would change it. Is that he could take that song and he could mm-hmm. walk all over it. I Meaning he could play the notes, he could play the, he could mm-hmm. keep up with the chords, and then he would play ahead and behind it. Yeah. And that 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 spatial going ahead and behind of the music sometimes didn't work because yeah. sometimes he would slow down, the band would slow down, and he would be sort of like, guys, keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is a, a sometimes they followed him here. too much, right? Right. Yeah. And when they they're they're at their best was when they were they were true to the song and got in that groove and and um and then Garcia would really just whatever they were trying to do he would say I could do it better while I'm playing my own stuff mm. and that's what I think that's what I see when he goes off into the, his own world he's just sort of taking getting on, you know I always thought sitting on top of the world mm. was not just a, an ode I thought that was his yeah. statement that I am here and I will take this music and I will dominate it all the time mm. which is of course not a, a hippie thought but it is a thought of a musician who really can see mm. there's more out there than he can do and that he always wants to get there. And I think that was why he's perpetually dissatisfied with what he what he mm. achieved because I don't think he ever got to where he, he thought he could get to, even though the rest of us are sitting back here going, what's an E chord? You know, yes, yeah. it's, it's magical. Let's play a little of John Mayer talking here, and I'm going to play this with the full heart and spirit of the embracing of John Mayer's full enthusiasm if not always his loquaciousness. But this was a little interesting snippet of something he was talking about on the uh, O'Teal's podcast, which is very good. I've listened to a few of those. This is him on Jerry's personality being expressed through his guitar playing. You know, thank you for all of that. John, when you started to, uh, you know, dive as deep as you did into the dead, did you get into like watching Jerry interviews and listening to him like kind of as as a fan or as a, like, just wanting to learn more about Garcia? Like, did you? Um, A little bit. I I knew, though, that I was coming from a a different world. Like, I was already coming from a different universe. So Mm -hmm. to me, everything you think I would have gotten from an interview, I got from every single note that he was playing. And I can tell you why. So once you understand the arrangements... So I was hot to learn the arrangements so that I could understand the relativity of what made his playing different on any given night. Mm-hmm. Once I can do that and I can lock into this, like this control group. Okay. Here's how China cat sunflower goes, right? Here's how it goes. Hearing 
all of the different permutations of his playing on top of it. I mean, down to the note for yeah. me it was like hearing his theory about the world or his philosophy on life through playing. And I still get that. And I, I've always felt like I could hear the records Jerry was listening to either in between tours or backstage on a record player. Wow. It would make its way in. So you mm-hmm. can accept little mm-hmm. things and go, oh, he look what he was listening to. Like, And I can feel it sometimes. Like, I can sometimes, like, Billy, you guys used to do a song called Next Time You See Me. Yeah, I love that tune. It's fun, and, and, and And I could tell, like, oh, he's having a Freddie King moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, Jerry's having a Freddie King, like, blues moment. Isn't that cool? And, of course, they do next time you see me in this concert. Um, I thought that said it all in a real way. Like, I, I, he, he remember the, the, the time that Jerry was alive playing this music through 1995. Like, how many different iterations of things were there and, and his playing evolved? I mean, no one has probably played that much in that amount of time on stage. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the banjo years, I mean, he starts out in 58, and, uh, except for a stint in the Army in 1960, which I think needs to be recorded. Oh, that needs to be a movie. Yeah, if, if that's not in Scorsese's movie, I'm walking out. I mean, that's got to be... He gets, not to get too off track, but he gets thrown out of the Army because he won't show up, which I think is... <laughs> Imagine yeah, being able not to not even, show up at the army where you're already there. You can't go anywhere he else. Pull, yeah, he didn't pull a clinger. He's in. He's in. He's in San Francisco. He gets arrested for stealing his mom's car. He gets the choice of going to jail or the army. Chooses the army. Eleven months later, he's out of the army because he refuses to show up. Which I think is uh, just just everything you need to know about Jerry Garcia. But to get back to his blues, I, I do think that you know sometimes we lose track that. They, what they are communicating to us, they're communicating to us, and we just really need mm. to listen. Mm-hmm. Rock and roll is such a hard medium because it's both entertaining, it's fun, it's background music, um, it's around us all the time. Um, the lyrics don't change, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you, you finally hear something. Yeah. And this, I think this is, to me, is the most embarrassing thing about my listening to music is I go years singing these songs, and then it'll be 20 years later, I'll go, Oh, <laughs> that's what that meant. Like everyone else sort of got it in nineteen. Oh, I totally do the same oh, thing. That, like Tears for Fears, I do understand that song now. Like <laughs> I just it was always a song that was there, but it never meant anything. And I think I think that when you start thinking about that, all these things that are everything in this world is consciously produced, mm. right? Whether it's a pencil sharpener or work of art, mm-hmm. or there, there, there's engineering and thought and dreams that go into it. And somebody had some conception in the middle of the night that maybe we can do this where we've never done this. Mm. We, 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 we walk all over that, that magic that's out in the world. And we just sort of forget about it. Like, you know, the magic of a pepperoni pizza is, is, you know, it's lost us because we can go to down the yeah. street and get it. But all these things, and especially in art where it's a, such a conscious effort to get emotion and feeling and, and, and specific thoughts out of our heads and into something that other people can just echo back to us and say, yeah, it's going to be all right. Mm. We relate, we, we lose that. And it's, it's sad. I think, I think John's right on it. I think if we listened a little more and talked a little less, we'd probably all be better off. The thing that I've plugged into the most in dead and company is that it renewed my appreciation for Jerry, which is if I, if I ever had the opportunity to say that to John Mayer, he'd probably take that as the greatest compliment that anyone <laughs> could pay his playing. Uh, because yeah. his playing drove me back to Jerry's playing because I didn't realize how 
weirdly unique it was as as guitar playing when I was into it in the high school in the early 80s years. You know, it was just part of this thing that I was into and my my introduction into it was was really another enclosed universe with its own rules and and set of behaviors and codes and languages that I that that's how my mind works. That's the stuff I always like closed seemingly closed societies that you have to kind of earn your way into. I always liked that, and The Grateful Dead was that for me then. Then, of course, the songs, the music. But, you know, I had to get older and appreciate all kinds of music and all kinds of songwriting in order to really then, as you say, have these moments um, appreciating the, the the breadth and the vastness of the catalog and the quality of the songwriting, particularly the Hunter Garcia songs, which, which to me, as I said before, those are... Those are equivalent to Lennon McCartney, Jagger Richards, Bob Dylan. I think they, they're they in the pantheon of American song in a way that really very few other, uh, certainly American acts ever are going to be. But it's that it's, playing and the listening uh, that I get so much. Over. That's why I nerd out now. It's, it's refined to the point where I, I'm listening with my headphones and I'm watching Dead and Company and I'm listening to what O'Teal I mean, a musician like O'Teal is just, it's, it's yeah. otherworldly. It's beyond, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Mayor O'Teal, Shimenti as three people listening to each other and reacting to each other is what I get off on on Dead & Company, most of all. Now, it has to have yeah. the Bob Weir and the Kreutzmann and the Mickey kind of foundation around that as well. Yeah. But what those guys are doing in terms of the way musicians are just so elevated in terms of, being having the experience that John Mayer has at such a young age or O'Teal where you're like, Oh, he was like in the Almond brothers for 20 years before this, like what? Um, yeah. So there's just so much more like experience and chops being deployed, which is I think why in the concert environment, it's like, yay. And there's a lot of noise and a lot of craziness going on. And of course I'm, my mind goes towards all the, freakitude and all the other stuff and it can be hard to just fixate on the music in that concert environment whereas when i'm on the couch tour and i have the headphones on i'm, I'm like i'm picking up on phrases that are being bandied about and ideas that are being introduced and fought over and all the stuff that goes on in the music that's really cool to listen to and that's what sent me back to listening when i listen to the stuff that they're putting out now from the archive um that's what I key into and how amazing it really was, how amazing Jerry was, how amazing the whole thing was that it ever existed, let alone evolved and continued, particularly when you read about how screwed up the whole business side of it was and just how, I mean, the famous, the great line in the, um, I don't think they had it in the little intro thing, but I had, when I read it in the, this, this Europe 72 portion of the McNally book, you know, they'd have endless meetings at Front Street, the Grateful Dead offices, where Jerry spent a lot of time, which is kind of a funny side. Like he's he's in he he liked hanging out there and he liked bandying about in these arguments and kind of everyone had an equal say in what they would or wouldn't do. You know, they had like weeks of meetings about who's gonna go on Europe 72. We can't take everyone, so who's going? Who's necessary? Who's not necessary? And after like weeks of this, Jerry just famously said, everybody goes. So they took like yeah. whatever this entourage is, which is just a hilarious thing. So, um, well, it's, it's funny. I do, I, I, I have a slightly different take on that because I love to be present in that shows where I, I know I'm not, I know I'm going to miss a bunch of stuff, but I just like to sort of feel it mm. because I feel like that's the first yes. and only time I'm really going to feel it for the first time. And I think the big difference for me, Jason, between now and then is back then you'd, you'd go to a concert and it'd be great, 
and then you'd wait seven weeks, and maybe the tapes would come. And when the tapes came, yeah. if they didn't have a ton of hiss and they were <laughs> rightly calibrated, you could relive it. Yeah. Today, you go home and you go to you know archive.org and you bring up the show, and it's meticulously recorded, mm-hmm. and you can go back and you can now enjoy the show over and over again for all those things you're describing. Yeah. And I, I, my ear is not as good as probably yours is. I, I, it takes me a long time to, to hear things, mm. but um, I have a good sense of there's something there. I just got to keep going mm-hmm, for it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the technology now and the openness and the ability to hear these concerts at a mm. high fidelity level, almost instantly it's unbelievable. is more than you can ask for. I did an interview with, um, somebody in the Grateful Dead organization back in 91. Uh, and it was the Weir's co-writer um, of, of Cassidy and Deal and all mm. these guys. And he wanted to, He said he would do the interview and answer Grateful Dead questions if, and only if, I would print something about the Electronic Frontier Foundation and this thing called the Internet, which was coming. So you're, you're talking about, just for, for people who are not deep in this, you're talking about John Perry Barlow, who in addition yes. to being Bob Weir's songwriting partner and a Grateful Dead adjacent character of numerous decades, was also very involved in the Internet and technology and movements of the, the early 90s. Thank you. Yes, one of the things that Dead don't get enough credit for is their... Uh, obviously known for their sound and playing around with Owsley and sound and all this stuff. But The Well, which was one of the mm-hmm. first internet communities um, in Berkeley in the late 80s, uh, sort of sprang up this whole group of freedom-loving people. And, and John Perry Barlow, who wrote a lot of Grateful Dead songs, John Perry Barlow lived out in Aransas, Montana, and he was really big on the internet remaining free and open, not being corporately owned entities not being restricted by the government and one of the things that he sort of baited the hook for deadheads with is imagine that you could go on your computer <laughs> and you could listen to any concert in the grateful dead archive instantly no more sending tapes no mm. more you could at your fingertips for free listen to a soundboard quality level and i i he was saying words that didn't mean anything <laughs> I wanted to know how we wrote Cassidy. I wanted to know if I could get a backstage at Radio City. I didn't care about you know some you know, something over my radio or yeah. what, whatever you're talking about. I don't have a computer. Why would I need a computer? Yeah, and it was they were so far ahead in their mind space mm. about the, how the world was going to be in 20 years. And of course, he didn't make it. You know, he died mm. younger. Mm-hmm. And um, but he saw this world that was coming, and this technology we live in now, and what we live in with this music. It really allows us to hear things mm. in, in, in a way that we really haven't before. And I think the danger in that is maybe we revere it too much. Maybe we, these guys are out there playing guitar for two hours, you know, laughing at Bobby for missing a lyric three hours into it. That's a little bit unfair. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but the other, the other thought I had that I wanted to sort of discuss with you that I think is, is kind of mind blowing is if you take the Grateful Dead starting in 1965, right? They're basically a blues bar band, right? Mm-hmm. They sort of coalesce a little bit and they go through their psychedelic era of 67, 68, 69, which I consider a masterpiece era, just stunning stuff. Then they sort of, uh, in the 70s come, they sort of pare down, they sort of hit their country stride, and here we are in seven, 1972, beginning of 72. This is seven years into the journey. Everything they've come through, these waves they've already come through, mm-hmm. Dead and Company is now on their seventh year mm. anniversary. They have come musically that same path. Now, they're playing the same 
product. They're playing the same stuff. They're not reinventing the wheel. There's no new songs. Mm -hmm. But in that amount of time, the evolution of the Grateful Dead into what they became in 1972, to me, is very similar to what the Mm. Dead and Company are today. This last tour was so well played, and they were so Mm. in tune with each other. Mm -hmm. And you could tell it it wasn't from being in a practice hall a lot. It was from organically playing these songs over and over again and speaking to each other. And I think the sad part about this being near the end is this evolution uh, that they've created is very similar to what I saw the, the band originally create, which is this, this sort of organic way of playing together and taking apart, you know, taking the wheat from the chaff, mm. keeping the stuff that works and moving on. And even some of the songs, if you listen to Den Company from 16 and 17, mm. um, the amount of tentativeness and re, you know, watching Bobby yeah. is Bobby happy. That doesn't happen. Anymore. You're right. Yeah. And O'Teal, you and I used to joke about O'Teal's aggressiveness on yeah. stage because yeah. I wanted him to take over. And right. I agree, he's a fantastic musician. I wanted him to have a little more. Hey, we're taking it this way. Yes. And now you have that. You do. You, you can hear O'Teal shaping the songs and then following O'Teal for a while. Yeah. And that's really hmm. just fascinating to me. This this time frame. We tend to put the for dead fans. We tend to put these. Buckets of you know 69, yeah. 72, 77 into these, but they were really part of this journey that Den Company's gone pretty far down the road. On. Yeah, you're right. It's gone longer than than it feels. I was thinking during last the last year, I had the same exact thought you did. Um, you know the the degree of togetherness felt so. Because uh, remember, before the tour, there were rumors. You know, this was like one of the annoying parts of fandom, the toxic fandom that I that I reject is the you know there's a there's a gross rumor mill all the time on some of the Facebook pages or whatever, and this is happening or this is happening, and they're getting rid of they're getting rid of Billy and they're you know Jay Lane was cited in uh, Red Rocks and he's taking you know all this bullshit that I just hate. Yeah, but um, the playing last tour was so exactly what you said. I did. I do have to admit, I almost hate saying it, but I remember thinking it at the time. I remember thinking, well, you know, if this is it, um, maybe I'm okay with that because I, it, it, for the first tour, for the first time, I don't know how to say this. It was, it wasn't a plateau per se, but I did for the first time feel like this maybe has gone where it can go here. Like it can still on any night deliver what I'm interested in. We can still have liftoff as Mickey famously will say Um, almost every night, you know, we are achieving liftoff in dead and company uh, the last summer tour. Um, But you know, that seven year journey that you, that you talk about, I do think you're right. It probably will lead to some unexpected things. It's probably the touring life itself and the and the concert business has changed also in seven years. You don't have to do that so much anymore. And I think for them, playing the sheds, playing the summer, um, these schedules are so hard to line up. You know, Bobby is, it, it used to be Jerry who was the guy that everyone was like, my God, take some time off, sir. You are like on the road 11 months of the year. Like the dead are touring two full tours and then you're touring every single night available in between then. And that's kind of like what Bobby's turned into now. I mean, he's been on the road continually with Wolf Brothers or Dead and Company for the last few years. Um, 
so I think you're probably right that the touring business has changed. They could do things like you just saw Harry Styles play, I think, 14 or 20 shows at MSG. Um, there are opportunities to do things like that that I think are a little bit more realistic for at least three dudes who are, you know, going to be in their 80s, although Bob is in as fantastic shape as he has ever been in his life. I mean, that's the other thing that's happened to him over seven years with Mayer in the band, I think. Like year one, year two, you kind of, there was more, there was more, is Bobby happy? Like what's going on on stage? Because Mayer was such a forceful addition and presence that he had to, I think, get his shit together a little bit more than he'd had to in years previous. Now, just remember like in 20, what, 15, like, we're not that many years removed from that infamous incident at the Capitol Theater where he, you know, tumbled over uh, after, you know, maybe taking too much medication for a back injury. Um, that was only yeah. a few years before then, I think. Well, he also, I mean, he had his red stool on stage with him. True. Uh, you know, 15, 16, 17. And yeah. I was at the concert where Bobby beat up his um, iPad. He got, <laughs> just took a swing at it and then yeah. started beating up his microphone and, it was pretty funny, I have to say. There wasn't one person, including the guys on stage, who weren't yeah. laughing because, you know, I, I, who knows what set him off. Yeah. You know, it was something in, that only he heard. Right. It was enough to, to go after the technology, and they took the brunt of it. Well, let's wrap up by talking about the, the, the upcoming year. Are you planning on going to Playing in the Sand? I know you went the last two years. I am. I will. Uh, this is my, I went uh, 19, 20, uh, 21. And I'll be there this year. Wow. I was there last year, even though the band wasn't. And, <laughs> and uh, just to speak to your rumors, it's funny because we, we all assumed it was going to happen. We yeah. all went. Right. And even though there was COVID and all this stuff, I brought my daughter with me. Even. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was fairly confident that we were all going to be okay. I wouldn't mm-hmm. bring my daughter if I didn't think yeah. it would be okay. And um, literally the day before, when they announced that John had uh, COVID, we were all on the beach just doing our thing. And we all just kind of went, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's about right. And, you know, of course, they made it up to us. But um, I had 11 days ready to go last year. Wow. I was going to both weekends. Wow. And um, by day five of sitting on the beach and playing the drums and being treated like a king, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I just, you know, I never th- thought, like, I could tell you, like, how long can you stay on a beach in Mexico? Five the days. Is about four days. <laughs> and the fifth day, you're like, get me. You're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm good. <laughs> well, yeah, I will be in Mexico. I'm very excited for that. Um, it's 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 really worth doing. If you, I think there's still some yeah. some slots available down there, but it's, it's going to be terrific. And then my plan is to see the North Carolina shows, the Boston shows, the Chicago shows. And my mom lives near Saratoga, so I don't know if I'll make Saratoga mm. or not. But I do have to work for a living as well. So. True, you do have to fit that in. I um, I don't know. I was looking at the the rundown. Um, interestingly, I probably won't go to the closest shows. The City Field shows, um, I just can't stand that long in the on the field, uh, which is really the only kind of good seats, quote unquote, the baseball stadium shows, it's just hard to sit somewhere where you can see enough and hear enough. Like doesn't really work for me in, as a concert experience. Although I've done city field the last couple of years. Um, I am eyeing a little swing in some of those smaller ones. So I'm glad to hear you say that those are kind of interesting and worthwhile because um, there's like a, a trying to try and convince my friend Buck to, uh, to do a little like three show drive through swing maybe in the uh, later May, earlier June part. So we'll see, but then it is also tempting um, 
to maybe do the LA kickoff to shows, which is a weird thing that I have a appreciation for. I've gone to some LA shows in the dead and company years, and it's such a weird place to see the dead. They've always been at the um, Hollywood bowl, which is an amazing venue, but it's not really, it's not like anything else where we go see the band. Um, I wish I could go to the gorge. That's been on my bucket list. Cause that's just the most insanely beautiful venue I've ever seen, but the timing doesn't really work for that. So, but again, I'm such a couch tour guy, Jeff, that it's going to be, it's hard to get me there. Uh, but I'll have to attend some, so we'll see. Um, you well, never I hope know. You do. I, I also, I forgot. I'm also on the Indiana deer Creek. Oh, that's a great one. You got to go to that. It's really worth going to. That is a nice small. Yeah. And venue. the shows are always amazing there. That's Noblesville, always. right? It's Noblesville, Indiana. Yes. Really Indianapolis. Those are very good. All right, listen, we could talk like this forever, but it bodes well because maybe in the upcoming year we will, Jeff. I am going to send you my plans for my podcast, which doesn't necessarily happen after every show because that would be insane. Um, <laughs> what I did, I'll send you a list. What I did was I, I parsed out the shows that you kind of do have to do every one of. Like you do have to do every one of the last three shows in San Francisco. You do have to do... Uh, the Fenway shows maybe as a twosome. You have to do the City Field as a twosome, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's a few things in there. You probably can hit a three-show run and catch up on an episode, but I'm still putting together what it could be. But I think the way we've talked here, we're, we're far-ranging and we're covering a lot of interesting ground and territory. So I hope you will join me again. And I really yeah, appreciate all the time and the effort that you put into obviously having a lot of cool stuff to say here. I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. I I had a great time. I'd love to. I could do this all day. I know. Well, we, maybe we will. All right, Jeff. Thank you so much, buddy. I appreciate it. Cheers. I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.